Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. It's time to let it roll. This week, special guest Dr. Cam Cobb returns to finish the tale of Moby Grape. Cam's the author of What's Big in Purple and Lives in the Ocean, The Moby Grape Story. As always, you can access our YouTube playlists and learn more about the episodes on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. This week, Cam and I conclude the tale of Moby Grape and their journey from being the next big thing of 1967 to madness, drugs, mental institutions, and utter creative and personal dissolution. We'll talk about Skip Spence's infamous axe-wielding breakdown at Columbia Records headquarters and how the rest of the grape managed to cut some great music amidst the ruin. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again we're joined by our guest, Dr. Cam Cobb, author of What's Big and Purple and Lives in the Ocean, The Moby Grape Story. Cam, it's good to have you back. Thank you. It's great to be back. Cool. And so when we left our our intrepid uh, musicians, we pretty much told the story of how five incredibly talented musicians from all up and down the Pacific coast, from San Diego to Seattle, had come together and created a five-piece band that set the music world buzzing, set off one of the first rock-era major label bidding wars, recorded an album that Rolling Stone Record Guide rated five stars that continues to be regarded as a classic, and then everything went wrong. They released five singles on the same day, meaning no radio station in the country knew which one to play. Then they were arrested on the night of their over-the-top record release party. And and you tell all this story in a chapter in your book you call Three Punches, but we didn't get to the third punch, which happened at the Monterey Pop Festival. Let me give a little context before I hand it over. For those who don't know, Monterey Pop was one of the first big rock music festivals of the rock era. It's a precursor to Woodstock and Altamont and Isle of Wight and all those others. And it's also the place where Jimi Hendrix, The Who, Otis Redding, and Janis Joplin all broke through and became enormous superstars. Moby Grape was originally scheduled to go on when at Moby Grape, at Monterey Park? Uh, they were supposed to go on the Sunday, which was the, uh, the final day of the festival. And in a key spot, right? They were supposed to That's go right. second to last, when... I think. 
the the right to go went right around the time you know that was when Hendrix performed. He was on the Sunday, and the Who were on the Sunday. Uh, Janis Joplin, Big Brother, and the Holding Company had an opportunity to do two performances. Um, kind of negotiated that, and she performed so early in the festival, but also late in the festival. And for the Grape, they were initially supposed to go on that Sunday. Their their album had just come out. There was um, good buzz about the band. There was good buzz about the album. Uh, unfortunately, it was five singles, and so they weren't really climbing the charts, but um, there was good buzz about the band. And when the festival rolled around, well, actually, right before the festival, things started to get a little convoluted. How so? At these festivals... Um, musicians were sometimes handed pieces of paper as they're about to walk on stage and on the piece of paper they're signing, uh, agreeing to have themselves filmed and they're releasing um, their, you know, their, their performance for, for the purposes of film. And uh, Neil Young uh, famously did not allow himself to be filmed at Woodstock. And so sometimes you had bands um, not allow themselves or performers not allow themselves to be filmed. And it could be that they weren't happy with the, what was in the contract, or it could be that they, and sometimes that had to do with the money. Sometimes they just didn't want to be filmed at the performance. And so what ended up happening with the grape was that the, their manager uh, was, trying to negotiate more money for them to perform uh for, for them to perform but be films performing and so you have to remember that at this time people didn't realize how big this festival was going to become and how historic it was uh, there was a sense of it because there were there was a precedent with the jazz festivals and the folk festivals and those festivals were recorded, audio recorded, and and they were and some of them were filmed, and and the audio recordings and films uh, did quite well. So there was some precedent there. For pop, this was a new thing for rock music and pop music. And so uh, with with the grape, they're they're when they were getting the offer to be filmed, their manager was um, trying to negotiate for more money, trying to get you know, leverage things to get more money. And so he was talking to Lou Adler and John Phillips, who were the organizers of the festival. And that's Lou and, Adler of, of A&M Records and uh, John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas, who at this point in time were two of the most powerful men in the music business. That's right, yeah. So what what ended up happening was they lost their patience and they said, we're not going to do this. So, so, you, so Moby Grape will not be included in the film. They will not be included on the album, and we will change the schedule. And so Moby Grape got moved to Saturday, and they got moved to early in the evening. And it, it really worked against them in a couple of ways. Like, number one, they were not performing on that, um, you know, really sought-after Sunday time slot later on on Sunday. And they they were performing as people were, you know, many people were still coming in and sitting down. Like, it was a good crowd there but there were still people coming into their seats at that point because they were the first performers on Sunday evening and then also at that time uh, some people had put out some buzz that maybe the Beatles were going to perform remember at that point the Beatles hadn't performed since the previous August actually at Candlestick Park which was it was unheard of that a band would not, would, would actually just stop performing and so there was a little bit of buzz about hey maybe the Beatles are going to come and perform and 
And what ended up happening with the grape was they they put in a phenomenal performance. Um, some of it is now available on on release. Like if Sundays put out a CD years ago, Live Grape, and they they include a portion of their performance. And people actually weren't sure when it when it came out if that was the whole performance or not. And it's not their whole performance. But what what came out is a phenomenal performance of the band reproducing these songs, these these really tight songs that they played in the studio, and they'd been honing these songs for, you know, for months and months. So they they were just on fire, and um, they they got good reviews afterwards at the performance. They did not get the same um, there wasn't the same glow that um, Hendrix and the Who had and Otis Redding. They they were kind of um, they were the the absolute superstars of of uh, Monterey pop, but great. The great did phenomenally well, but they did not end up going on the album and they did not end up going in the film. And in terms of legacy building that, so it had a bit of an immediate impact because the great knew that there was uh, they, that they were, there was a little bit of loss of momentum with that, but it also had a, uh, it also hindered them in, in the long term because that film by Pennybacher is is a historic document, and the album is a historic document. And the great could have been a part of that, and and their stuff would have been, their their performances were on par with other great performances at that festival. So in a, I call that like the uh, the third punch because it really, uh, it, it it was um, it, it was part success and and part part misstep because the the great performance was success but missed up because it was on the wrong night and also because it, they did get filmed, but they weren't included in the film. And so um, n- not having those legacy building documents or being a part of those legacy building documents that could have been phenomenal for the great. Yeah. were big blows. And it's not just that those were, you know, historic pieces. It's that that album sold a ton of units and that film was one of the hits of 1968 and was a huge part of Janis Joplin's big explosion in 1968 because she didn't, you know, Big Brother mm-hmm. and the Holding Company didn't even put out a major label album until '68 on Columbia, mm-hmm. and and the great missed all that. And I think the second thing he left out, the man who was negotiating, the rumors he was asking for a million dollars, which you know was completely outrageous and insane, was Matthew Cates, the guy we discussed last time, their manager who had gotten them to sign over the rights to the name, and I think that was the final wedge between the band and Cates. And and from there on, uh, they were in an acrimonious situation, and Cates proved himself time and time again not to be someone you want to be uh, crossways with. They they could feel that they had something in their hands, and there was a sense that it was slipping through their fingers at this. Already, it, you know, right after the first album came out, they could feel it slipping through their fingers. And they're frustrated partly with the label, they're frustrated with Matthew, their manager, and perhaps frustrated with themselves because of the arrest. And um, there, there was a sense that this is starting to slip through our fingers. And, and this is right at the dawn of, you know, the summer of love in 67. And then they immediately are put on tour with the mamas and papas and mess that up too. They, they were on tour with the mamas and papas and the Buckinghams. And there was a disagreement over uh, the order of, performers um at one gig and um they were taunting the buckinghams when the buckinghams were performing and so they got kicked off the tour now there wasn't very much left on the tour like there's just really one date left on the tour but this is not something that um 
put them in a, a positive light. So here, here you've got a band now that is starting to, you know, people are starting to think negatively about them. This is a band that, oh, they, they had five singles. How can they do that uh, in one day? Do they even write their own material? Then, oh, these guys are arrested and now they're awaiting their trial, which they waited for for a very long time. And then, oh, they, um, they, they got kicked off the tour. So the, there's a lot of things now that are kind of hindering their reputation. And, and when you say taunting the Buckinghams, I mean, that was quickly turned into a rumor that they had mooned Mama Cass and that their asses were visible to the Mamas and the Papas teeny bopper fans, which was toxic to every rock promoter in the country. Like, we can't trust these guys to be professionals that we can do business with. They were they're in a number of places in August, but they did a lot of performances. They ended up performing a lot in California because they started Columbia ushered them back into the studio quickly in in August so that they could get rolling on album number two. Album number one is out. Nothing. None of the singles are in the top ten. The singles didn't even. Uh, the highest was Omaha, which got up to number eighty-eight. And so Columbia wants new product and. Uh, they're not really thinking at this point um, artistically. They're really thinking financially. And how can we now start making our money back on all of this money that we spent promoting Moby Grape? As you know, last time we chatted about some of those over-the-top promotional activities that Columbia engaged in. And so they start recording the second album, what ended up becoming their second album, in August of 68. And we, we did talk a little bit about that last time as well. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that. But I think the thing I want to get to next is in the process of these sessions, which are chaotic. Apparently, they're partying quite a bit, and Rubinson's not comfortable with what he's getting. We can listen to the tape and say, dude... You know, are you deaf? Are you crazy? What was wrong with this stuff? But we weren't in the studio with him. We don't know how <laughs> yeah. how out of control these guys were because, you know, it's 1967. They're they're and they're acting like rock stars. They're being treated like rock stars. They're being driven around in limos and everything, and and partying. Um, but in the course of all this touring, Rubinson and recording, Rubinson pulls them to New York. And you talked a bit about the Fleabag Hotel, but we didn't really talk about. The biggest change in this period, which is one of the guys takes a sabbatical. Peter Lewis drops out. Moby Grape moved to New York, and they so they start recording their what became their second album in August of '67, and they had tracks that were partly finished, including he. He ended up getting finished in in New York in in November, and so they recorded they record or partly record four tracks in August. They are given time off in September, October from recording, but they're still performing. And they even go back and perform in the arc a little bit. And then in November, they are early November, they're still performing in California, Bay Area. And then they are um, flown over to New York to get rolling on this album, this, this second album. And so they have more tracks and they, they have tight tracks. They even have some songs that they didn't use um, that actually... They didn't think about using at that time. So Rounder is a great song that Skip had written that could have gone on the first album. It didn't end up going on the first album. They had lyrics for it, recorded an instrumental for the first album. Somehow it didn't get, it kind of got lost in the shuffle for the second album. And so they go to New York, they start recording new songs. They're performing in New York, uh, performing at great venues in New York. And it's a couple of weeks in November of recording. 
And after that, they end up performing in December. So they were doing like little mini touring haphazardly. And then in January, they had their trial and they were exonerated at the trial. That's, that's at early January. And then they go and perform on the Mike Douglas show. Remember, there's a time when, um, you know, there's no such thing as the Internet. And so these kinds of TV shows are uh, given opportunity for people to see performers across the country. So they go to the Mike Douglas show and that's in early January. And then they head back in, you know, still early January to, to New York. And then they really earnestly start working on the second album um, and trucking forward with the second album. But things are different now. Uh, songs that Skip had uh, brought forward in November are now dropped off the list and Skip has new songs. There are, and Skip's new songs are novelty songs. We, we don't know if he was encouraged to write those songs or if he put the, you know, like that was something of his own um, initiative. But so he, it's very different kinds of songs that Skip brings in January than what he had brought in November. Cause as last time we chatted, he had seeing, and you can do anything Two phenomenal tracks in November. Uh, one, I would describe it as a mini epic seeing, and you can do anything. It's absolutely catchy. And he's got these, these other songs, motorcycle, Irene, um, funky tunk. And, uh, he, these are they're so different than what he had brought. So it's starting to become like a bit of a novelty album in, in January and in, January, November, uh, sorry, January, February, you also get the, it, it is determined that there's going to be a bonus disc released with the, with the proper, with like the album proper. So you've got wow. And then you've got this bonus disc grape jam and the band's not fully uh, performing together on the, especially the grape jam. So the whole wow experience has the band not always working fully together. It's not like their first album where they're performing like a band in the studio. Now you've got people coming in, um, you know, like the White Album where, where you'll have a couple people performing uh, at one time. Some people just adding loops at the end of a track. And then you've got uh, this jam album that really is only partly um, has, has partial participation. And this, this whole concept of the bonus LP is something that Columbia was experimenting with that was a failed experiment. I mean, it, you know, there were albums and then there were double albums, which were very rare, especially in rock and roll at this point. I mean, you got to remember Electric yeah. Ladyland and the White Album had not come out yet. Only had Dylan's uh, Blonde on Blonde was like the first real double album and Frank Zappa's um, early double album. The, those are like Freak the out. first yeah. ones and they're only, only like a, a year and a half before this. And, and the... Columbia concept was not, hey, this is a double album. You're going to pay a little bit more money. This was, hey, this is a bonus. You're going to pay the price of a single album and get two records. And so the thinking was, we don't want to put full production effort into the second album. We'll just toss off a jam LP uh, and and sort of a quickie as a bonus package. But I don't think people understood that. Like, and and then mm-hmm. and then the fact that Lewis had left uh, and and the band is not functioning as a full unit. And so then they bring in Al Cooper and Michael Bloomfield to jam. And the, the prospect of that sounds pretty fun. If you're a fan of music of that era, I mean, Bloomfield was uh, still very active with the electric flag and Al Cooper had blood, sweat and tears. They're both veterans of Bob Dylan's big hits. And mm-hmm. just a year later, they would put out the super session album of Al Cooper, yep. Michael Bloomfield and Steve Stills. That was an enormous hit at the time, mm-hmm. but, 
neither of them, Al Cooper doesn't play his trademark organ, and Mike Bloomfield doesn't play his trademark lead guitar. They both play piano, and so yeah. it's very underwhelming. And just, um, you know, when you hear Dark Magic, the live recording they made in December of 1966, and hear what the grape could do in the context of a psychedelic jam, there's none of that that makes it to the, the grape jam LP. <laughs> it's different. So it's um, it's a lot jazzier in a lot of parts. There are some more rocking songs. There's a little bit jazzier music on it. There's also um, a, a song that's very, uh, you know, uh, kind of abstract on it, The Lake, which is uh, had a lyric from a contest. This is not unheard of. The Buffalo Springfields had uh, their record label do, do the same thing around the same time, actually. And so what, what Columbia did was when, when they looked at the album sales of the singles from um, those five singles that came out in early June of 67, and then they, they, they saw, wow, these singles are not going anywhere. The first album is doing very respectably, but it's not, um, you know, it's not a number one hit. So Columbia thinks, wow, how, what can we do? What's a little way that we could nudge some more album sales? And so they had this idea, let's, let's do a contest. Let's do a poetry contest. And the winner of that contest is going to have their poem as the lyric on a new Moby Grape album. And so that, that's what they did. And Moby Grape were um, able to select the winner, and they did select a winner. Uh, but, the, but Columbia did not approve of the poem that Moby Grape selected from the contest. So then Columbia gave them another um, poem that they had to use for that song. So they were not, uh, number one, they, they, you know, the idea of uh, somebody else writing a, a con, you know, a poem for a contest, and then they have they write a song around it. That's not something that they were totally engaged in, but then also they couldn't even pick the song that they were supposed to be able to pick. And so that, that happened right around that time as well. The contest happened earlier on, but the recording of that song, the lake happened uh, in February, right towards the end of those yeah. sessions. And that, and that recording, I, I mean, like I've remixed the, the wow sessions into, you know, an imaginary double album that could have come out. And I think in the context of a double album that was filled with rockers like Looper and, and Rounder and, and You Can Do Anything and Seeing, there was room for a sort of Revolution 9 type experiment or something like that. I mean, Jefferson Airplane's going to come out with After Bathing and Baxter's with, with some sort of similar stuff, but The Lake is worse than any of those things. You can really tell that the, the writing doesn't have any meter to it and the band's kind of half-assing it. You know, but and then there's things like Never, which is Bob Mosley singing a pretty powerful blues number with the band behind him, but they're not quite taking off, and it goes on for quite a bit of time. And then the other jams are, like you say, a little bit more jazzy, and I think there's some interesting things, some interesting snippets, but it's just not what you want from a 1968 rock album, you know, and, and, it, and it definitely does not show the band off to their best. But I, I still want to get back, like, do you know what happened with Peter Lewis? Why did Peter Lewis suddenly bail on the band at this point? I've looked at uh, one of the I looked at a lot of published interviews Peter's given over the years, and he's done some extensive interviews. Um, he explained that he was partly having some marital problems, but this happened actually in um, late May of '68, and he he said that it was right around the time when Skip had his breakdown and that Peter actually had flown back to California. And he said that he had missed a gig that was at the Fillmore that the band performed um, in Fillmore East. And it was shortly after that that he heard that Skip had had his breakdown in New York City. 
Let's get to that. Let's because Skip's breakdown, I think, is is that's the tragedy you can't take back. Like a a, a screwed up album is one thing, and and you know blowing some singles is another. But Skip Spence at this point has a complete psychotic break. I mean, he he takes an axe to uh, the door of Don Stevenson's hotel room, and and he takes that same axe to Columbia, Columbia Records headquarters and is threatening the producer, and ends up in Bellevue. And is never ever the same. I mean, he lives into the late '90s, but he's never again the bright, effervescent, gifted young person. Ever after, he's this haunted, broken shell of himself. And it's very similar to what happened to Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd, Rocky Erickson of the Thirteenth Floor Elevators, Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. I mean, was this a hallucinogenic fueled thing? Was Skip schizophrenic? There's rumors of witchcraft. What what happened with that? So. Maybe I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the things that led up to it. One thing to, that's important to remember is that it, uh, was the, the youngest person in the band. So when he went into Jefferson Airplane, that was in the autumn of 1965, he was 19 years old. And he had been in the Navy for a couple of years um, prior to that. And he played in a folk band also prior to that. He, he was, he's very much the, the young one. And when the first album was getting mixed in, I believe, New York, it was Skip and Peter who went. They're, they were the ones who were very interested in, in um, taking part in that process. And so Skip has been described as, as you were mentioning, effervescent. And if you look at some of the video um, captures uh, like the video tapes of their performances. You can see them performing at the, the Mike Douglas show. Is, is you know that one's available. There's a performance that they did in in the summer of '67 for um, Steve Paul scene that um, is available. Skip is someone uh, who your eyes gravitate to when you, when you watch the band performing. And it's not in any way to take away from the other performers in the band. They're, they were a phenomenal unit, but Skip had something that was um he was completely photogenic if you look at some of the photos on um, getty images for instance and and absolutely photogenic absolutely effervescent electric and he maintained this when he was performing so he had been doing this he he was in jefferson airplane and in, in moby grape for this period and by by 68 they're starting they're starting to get tired of things they've been sojourning for a while they've been touring around for a while his complications making the second album. They're living in New York and they're away from all their families in the Bay Area. So they they released that. So they finished the second album in, in February of 68. And it comes out in April of 68. By now, as we have um, discussed, the, 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 the alternative great band, the fake great band, is also performing in and around the United States, getting very negative reviews where they perform. And you can track this looking at the published concert reviews in various um, newspapers. And this and is so, Matthew Cates trying to establish his claim to the name of the band. Like he said, I've got clearly right. titled this band name, and, and it doesn't matter who has the contract with Columbia Records. I've got the name. These guys are hitting the road. This is Moby Grave. Yes, exactly. So the, so this dispute for the name is now beginning, and, and, and it's starting to get recorded 
in in the um, in the articles uh, that that come out in newspapers, and it's it's something that doesn't come out all at once. Actually, it's um, it comes out bit by bit, but you figure it out after you know after about a a month and a half, you can see that people have pieced together this story that's going on. Remember, there's no internet back then. This isn't unique. This happened to the zombies in 69 who had a huge hit with Time of the Season, but they had already broken up, and at least two different entrepreneurs put together fake zombies that were performing the country, and, and right. uh, Rod Argent and Chris White actually confronted one of them at the Whiskey at Go-Go, but at that point in the 60s, it was quite easy to you know, book some gigs and claim to be a band and people might not know the difference because people hadn't seen the Mike Douglas show. They'd never seen the grape. They weren't, there wasn't, you know, they weren't featured on the cover of Rolling Stone and Rolling Stone wasn't even really, it's not like you get Rolling Stone at a grocery store back then. I mean, it was a subscription Absolutely. Uh, thing and, and, and head shops and stuff like that. So this is something you could get away with. And it took people quite a bit of time to figure out what was happening. Absolutely. And so, so the grape are performing now in April and May. And this is when they have a new manager, and and Michael Gruber is their manager. He's the former road manager of the Stones, so now he's for the first time working as a full manager. And the tour they got booked is a, um, you know, it's 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 a chaotic tour. They're they're spiraling around North America, and and they're tired, and they haven't they haven't had a period where they spent two months at home for a long, long time, pretty much since the, the time that their first album came out. They have been away from home. They've had periods where they've popped back home and spent a few weeks there, but they, they haven't had a period where they spent like two months with their family um, since the first album came out. And so they're they're on this chaotic tour all over the place. And Peter is, um, as he mentioned in interviews, he, he's... Um, having some marital problems. So he heads back to California. And so now we're at late May. Um, right when the second album came out in April of 1968, Moby Grape went right back into the studio and started um, really haphazardly recording, not haphazardly to diminish the songs because they're lovely songs. It's a Beautiful Day is actually a song that Bob demoed at that time. So these are great songs, but it's a haphazard approach at, at getting rolling on a third album. They're, they're not, they don't have like a large block of time to stay in one place and record. So they start recording these demos and that's when they do um, a version of seeing that later gets added to um, with Bob's vocals. And so that comes out in, uh, they're putting that stuff together in April in the, in um, right around that time in May, Peter records a version of, if you can learn from my mistakes, a beautiful track that um, got, you know, recorded with the full band for their, what became their third album. So they're doing this haphazard recording. They're writing songs here and there. They're, they're writing in hotels. Tim Dallara, the road manager, told me that he was trying to figure out ways to get some sort of quiet sort of amplification so they could actually hear a little bit while they were playing in, in hotel rooms together, writing these songs, trying to do little arrangements for some of these songs. And so um, when they are in... Texas. Um, Don and Jerry write a couple of songs, and uh, they're really expressing their frustration with this tour that they're on. And they write the song "Big," which is um, kind of a panache of uh, like a campfire song. And they write um, they write a song that ends up that ends up going on their third album, 
And they, they write these songs while they're together, uh, just exhausted from this tour down in Texas. And it's mid-May. And the one that they wrote is Ooh Mama Ooh, which is actually that's the lead-off track on their third album. So they, say that, they wrote that song around, around the same time as that they wrote Big down in Texas. They're, they're in, then they go back to New York and they start, they, they're performing at the Fillmore East. Peter's not there for uh, at least, you know, one of the shows and they skip very soon disappears and skip is now hanging out with a woman who some people say was uh, practicing, which we don't know for certain. Um, she is with him in Greenwich village. Uh, and she's rumored to who, have uh, been an associate of Anita Pallenberg, Keith Richards and Brian Jones. Uh, that's right. That's right. Who, who are a group of people that have some, pretty ominous tints to their reputation, let's say, especially as yeah. regards witchcraft and things like that. Not that I'm saying witchcraft is real, but these were people that were doing a lot of drugs and playing around with the occult pretty flagrantly. So go ahead. And, and so, yeah, so they're, they're, he's hanging out with her and they're, down, they're in Greenwich Village. And so Skip's now apart from the band and staying with her in like a one uh, bedroom little flat uh, basement flat. And they pick up a man who's an, an older man who might be a homeless man. And, and this man becomes their Oracle and they ask him questions. And he answers these questions. They're talking about metaphysics together. And at one point, Don goes to see him. He, he finds out where Skip is and he goes to see him. And, um, Don's concerned with what he what he sees there, and so he says to Skip, "What are you doing?" And so um, Skip says, "No, this is a beautiful thing. I'm very happy with where I am right now." And so um, Don has some tea with him. He says, "Don told me he stayed and had some tea, and then he ended up going back." And Don was staying at the Albert Hotel. Jerry's at the Albert Hotel, and so is Bob Mosley, a bass player, and. They're have, still haphazardly recording in New York. They're supposed to be playing gigs, but now it seems like they have reducing numbers. And so there's a real question mark with Moby Grape. And ironically, as all this is happening, WOW is moving up to its high position. It's very close to getting up to number 20, uh, the top 20 on, on the Billboard 200. And so one day, um, Don and Jerry are recording and Don remembers uh, they're recording big or trying to uh, do a recording a big at the studio and, uh, you know, a little bit um, uptown in, in uh, Manhattan and Tim Delera road manager for the grape for, for, for about a year by that point, who um, had befriended the band in the Bay area is in, is in the hotel, the Albert hotel. And when, this is in early June of 68 and, and Skip comes into the, into the hotel and goes to Tim's room looking for Dawn. Skip is sweating profusely. Apparently he doesn't have a shirt on. He's got a leather jacket, leather pants. He's got a little ax in his hands and he's, he seems manic at some of the descriptions. He seems quite manic and Tim believes that Dawn and Jerry are recording at the studio. And so Tim sends Skip down to Don's room. He says, I think he's in his room. And Skip then disappears. And Tim calls the studio and finds out that 
Don and Jerry have left the studio. And then Tim gets worried. So he goes downstairs and he sees that Skip had chopped partway through the door of Don's room. The door had a little mechanism at the bottom where there was a, a little, almost like a little empty space. It was a thick door that had this little empty space where laundry could be put. And it was like a little mini area, like a little compartment um, with, you know, almost like little tin um, doors on it. And so folks could put their laundry there and then workers from the hotel would do their laundry and hang it back up there. And so Skip had chopped through that part. It was, that would have been relatively easy to break through. And Tim goes up to the door and uh, as he told me, I, he, he said, I, I thought I was going to walk into a bloodbath and he went into the room and fortunately it was empty and Skip had gone to the studio and, and Skip is um, man in this manic state and somehow he had passed Don and Jerry with, you know, not seeing them. Like they, they, they were traveling South and he was traveling North, maybe not on the same street possibly. But they, they made their way back to the hotel. By the time they got back to the hotel, they saw this door had been damaged and, and heard that Skip was there looking for Don. And Skip arrived at the studio and he was upset. And um, this woman had, um, apparently she, she had a, a lot of control over him. And he was... Um, doing things that she would tell him to do. So Don said at one point she, she would tell him to stand on his head and he'd stand on his head. And so they didn't, they really didn't know what to do. And this is a time where the idea of, um, you know, what kind of therapy would work for him and what kind of, um, you know, does does he need to clean out what kind of long-term therapy would help? They didn't know. And they're, they're also worried about um, his own safety because he's going around the streets carrying an axe, if he's going to do something like that, he could, like, he could potentially get shot or something by the, by the police. And so what they ended up doing was um, putting in complaints with the police and Skip was arrested and he's um, taken to uh, the tombs, the detention center, the well-known detention center. And surprising to everybody, he does not get put into like a, a sort of drug treatment program or anything. He gets put into Bellevue. And he's and he's now in Bellevue for five months, which is the hospital for and, the criminally insane. That is sort of the, uh, you know, epitome of the kind of overcrowded, understaffed, pretty brutal, uh, insane asylum. Not a mental health facility, an insane asylum. Uh, that that you know people like Geraldo Rivera would cruise, be make their careers as crusading journalists shutting down, and. Yeah. You know, so the idea of taking somebody who's a young, gifted musician, pretty innocent kid, who's in the middle of this, you know, hallucinogenic fueled psychotic break, and throwing him into a place like Bellevue—it's so similar to what was done to Rocky Erickson when he was put into the Rusk uh, Hospital for the Criminally Insane uh, in Texas after the 13th floor elevator's uh, career imploded, and, and Skip never recovers from this. Uh, so Skip, he's not the same afterwards. And um, while he's there, he writes a whole lot of songs. And these are songs that are occasionally um, very witty and silly and fun. There's lots of, there's wordplay in some of them. He, when, when Skip eventually got out and recorded 
these songs. You can hear he's cracking himself up sometimes while he's playing these songs. There are songs that are extremely dark. Like this is uh, the album that Skip made or the album that got made out of all the material that Skip recorded or, or some of, you know, the selected material from what Skip recorded um, is an album that at some moments um, has that same mood and, and feeling of the John Lennon Plastic Ono Band album. Like this is uh, an album that it is um, harshly intimate uncomfortably intimate at some times, uh, very beautiful at other times, very funny at other times. Uh, so Skip still has all of that talent, uh, but he's, he, he's not the same. It's not the same joyful person that, um, that, that existed beforehand. It's very similar to uh, Sid Barrett, you know, Sid Barrett and Pink Floyd writing these hit singles, see Emily play and everything. But then Sid Barrett, his solo albums, Madcap Laughs and Barrett are there's beautiful moments and powerful moments, but it's it's painful, it's raw, it's very clear that you're hearing somebody who is in great psychic distress, and that's the same thing, you know, the legend is that Skip got out of Bellevue in his pajamas, they gave him some money, he buys a motorcycle, drives it to Nashville, and records this album straight in the studio in just a few days. Uh you know, and that they didn't interfere with him at all. That Rubinson said, just let him record, man. And, and you know, then they proceed to put it out. It's called Or, and for a while, it was the lowest-selling record in Columbia Records history, according to legend. That's right. It, Columbia at that point was 80 years old, so it had the distinction of repeatedly being now the lowest-selling album in Columbia's 80-year history. Uh, Skip recorded it. Was, it was literally just a handful of days in December of 1968, shortly after Skip got out of Bellevue. And he, there, there's a new um, set of the album that's going to come out through Sundays. Um, Bob Irwin has uh, put it together and there, there are tracks that have been uncovered. Like it is almost like um, archeologically uncovered tracks that Skip had recorded. And so it's going to be a triple album set that, we're going to get to hear a lot more of what he put together and some different versions of the songs that ended up making that final album. And it happened very quickly in the studio. It took a little while to come out. So it, it didn't come out until um, late spring, around late spring, early summer of 1969. And it attracted positive reviews very early on. And starts to attract uh, kind of a, you know, there's a cult following. Musicians love this music. And unfortunately, Skip never released another album. He produced music, and he produced music right until the end. He wrote a song that was um, potentially going to be put on, a, a, you know, a, an album of, of music for the X-Files. And, and the song has been released. It didn't end up going on the X-Files um, album um, collection, but... He was still producing music uh, at the very end. He passed away in 1999. But it, certainly this is a person who, who could have been uh, you know, a major voice in, in, in the music landscape as, uh, as a member of a group in Moby Grape and also as a solo artist, uh, as Orr certainly indicates. But unfortunately, uh, you know, things really didn't work out for him. And... and um, he had, a, he had a real hard time afterwards. And, yeah. and he had, as, as you had mentioned, like also with the, the kind of care facilities, like accessing care that would be, uh, you know, care that would work for him. 
Yeah, and, and I don't know that they could help that today, but I think that the approach uh, would not involve, you know, and, I, and I, we don't know exactly what happened to Skip in Bellevue, but we know that Rocky Erickson was given electroshock and Thorazine and his various, uh, ex, you know, exposures to the mental health system, such as it was. And, um, you know, Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones was given massive ma- amounts of mandrax, what we would call quaaludes, uh, and his exposure to the, you know, mental health regime of the time. And, and, and yet Skip's not the only one who ends up pretty tragic. Bob Mosley suffers from alcoholism and, and mental illness and homelessness for the next 20 years as well. Maybe I'll say a little bit more about what happened to the grape after Skip left, and then we can follow um, Bob's path. Sure. So, while Skip was in Bellevue, the grape uh, Peter came back to the fold, and the grape, uh, well, they were on hiatus for a while first, and then they performed at the Shaper Festival in New York City um, at uh, in Central Park, and this was a this was a pretty big festival. Like, there there were big names there performing with them. And that was at the end of June. And the reports are that they gave um, it was kind of an up and down performance. And this is their, this is really now the grape trying to figure out, can we move forward as a quartet? And throughout the summer, they did more performances. They, um, they came up to Canada as well. They performed at a festival called time being at the Canadian national exhibition. And they, they performed at a lot of bigger venues too in, in California. And they're getting, different kinds of reviews um, and this had been happening to them even before Skip left and uh, there, there are times where uh, people lose tempers when equipment is not working and there's uh, problems with arriving at, uh, to gigs on time so this is continuing where although actually the bigger issue now is that they don't seem to be fully into it as, you know, according to concert reviewers and so their talent is still there. They're still able to perform phenomenally as a four-person act, but they're not fully into it. There's um, there's that varying quality of their performances. So this is occurring in in the summer of 1968, and they end up going back into they they record a demo in in October, they, they do a little, very little bit of recording at the end of August, but they also do a little demo at the, uh, in, in mid October, but then they go back into the studio in November and they, they agree. Let's, let's try and make a go of this in the studio as a quartet. And so it's just a period of, uh, I believe it's, it, it was less than two weeks and, and they recorded that whole album will be great 69 though. They took a track that skip had from before seeing, phenomenal track like a you know mini epic and they they bob um you know bob provides most of the lead you know vocals on that and so this album gets cut in 13 i think it's 13 days um 13 days but i think it's uh maybe just across those 13 days like 10 studio days very quickly they're they're very efficient in the studio these are songs that they had written um, while really about their lives. And so you have Peter writing songs about um, relationships and he's really record, you know, um, almost musically recording what's going on with his own marriage at the time. Don and Jerry have been, you know, writing some songs that express their frustration with touring. Um, Bob, you know, after he has a hard time on the highway, at one point he writes a song, Trucking Man and, 
uh, in an interview, he explained that he partly wrote that song when he's having difficulty in his driving and he wanted to keep himself awake while he's driving from one city to another. And um, it's a, it is a trekking song. It's a, it's a song that just charges forward. And so, and then, then you get one song where Don and Jerry actually uh, is self-referential to the, the Moby Dick connection with the band's name, the song called Captain Nemo that also goes on the third album. And, and this is an album that did well with critics. Uh, however, it did not do nearly as well commercially. So now instead of, instead of making number 20, like they did with the Wow album, now they're not even making number 100. Out of all the arguments, you know, Moby Great fans, the few of us there are, will argue about whether, you know, the merits of Wow. But to me, the objective evidence for the demerits of Wow are that on the back of the first album, you know, which which had all the earmarks of, of, a, of a good album, it, it stayed on the charts a long time, it built positive word of mouth, and its successor did even better than it had done, yeah. at least initially. But then Wow, yeah. with, you know, the Moby, the Grape Jam gimmick thing, and then... You know the gimmick songs and the uh, Gene Autry track that you have to speed up to 78 and and everything. You can tell that killed their reputation because 69 just you didn't can see even the album sales. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The the next album sales suffered, um, and so they record that in November. And ironically, um, so they're recording Moby Grape, what became Moby Grape 69 in in mid November of 1968, and it's right around that time that Skip gets out of Bellevue. And it's just a couple of weeks after that, that Skip is down in Nashville um, over a scattered number of days performing um, what ends up becoming or where Skip plays all the instruments. So it's very interesting activity happening in the studio from uh, the quartet will be great now being, and then also Skip recording on his own. And so you get these two albums, very different albums, uh, both very strong albums recorded in that, in that, uh, you know, just w- within weeks of each other. And in December, the grape don't perform very much. They, they do a few performances. But in, in January of 1969, this is right when Moby Grape 69 is going to come out. The grape do a few performances um, kind of uh, at the, the um, hallmarks of their past in and around the Bay Area. And then they go, uh, they're fl- flown over to perform in England and they're going to do a little mini tour in Europe. So they're there for about three weeks in January and February. And there's, there's some mishaps on the tour. They're also performing with the band called Group Therapy um, that is opening for them. Another band that Michael Gruber is managing. And um, Group Therapy at one point on the tour, actually it's right before the grape arrived, Group Therapy got into a scuffle with some hooligans and they got people got put in the hospital actually and a few days after that things actually got worse because uh, folks in the band including michael gruber got in trouble they got busted and so all these reports this this young band that is uh, across the ocean which is you know it means a different thing in 1969 when when somebody's across the atlantic ocean far far away and and there's news reports trickling back to the u.s uh, uh, in the dailies about what's going on with group therapies tour in, in UK. So the grape then arrive, they they do not have the same kind of energy for performances that they had in 1966 and early to mid 1967. They are, it's, it's like, um, it's like running a marathon and you, and you hit the wall and, and this has been happening to them. And so things have been going wrong for a long time for them. A lot of little things have been going wrong. 
they, they and and it doesn't matter what they do they can make a they can make a, a really good album but that's not going to work out for them and so so they're performing on this tour and they're getting um well they went and they went on uh bbc and john peel was uh when the recordings that they did on the for the bbc with john peel when he introduces them uh by then they'd moved on to the european portion of the tour and uh, the continental part of the tour, uh, John Peel has expressed uh, real disappointment in, in, in the band's attitude and energy level when they went in to record at the BBC. So things are, are, are not working out for them. And they return to the U.S. in mid-February. They play, Don remembers that they played at the Avalon. They had other gigs booked. Don doesn't remember, and Jerry doesn't remember playing other gigs, but... Right at that time, Bob uh, leaves the band. And in interviews, Bob has said, uh, I, I interviewed Bob once, and but he's given some uh, different interviews over the years that I also drew from in the book. And so there's one in the mid-70s that he gave uh, with the San Diego newspaper, and then there was one in the late 90s um, uh, that's an audio interview that um, you can get it through Rock's Back Pages. And uh, he, Bob... Uh, felt that there wasn't much really happening. He, he felt like this is the end. And so he dropped out of the band at that point. And he is also returning to school at that, but he's really not sure what he's going to do. So he goes back to San Diego and he's returning to school and his draft card comes up uh, around the summertime. And he ends up volunteering, uh, you know, not for the army, but for, for the, uh, not volunteering, the draft card came up, but he ends up, uh, going into the Marines, which uh, shocks a lot of people. And by that point, though, the band had stopped completely. When Bob dropped out of the band, uh, they went on yet another hiatus. And so really, there's nothing happening with the grape in April and early to mid-May. But then in late May, Peter, Don, and Jerry are sent down to Nashville and they're given three days in the studio to work with Bob Johnston, who's a huge producer. He worked with Bob Dylan and the Birds and Johnny Cash um, to, to make an album down in Nashville. And in, they had partly finished songs, and they did a little bit of writing while they were down there, and they recorded this album uh, called Truly Fine Citizen. And it's an album that... Uh, I. Recently, I, I wrote a piece for Ugly Things magazine about that album, um, and it's a, quite a long piece, actually. And I really revisited that album, and I grew much more to appreciate the album than before. Uh, as Don describes, these songs have, he says, they, they had good bones, and they just didn't have the time to really uh, fully work them through. And so so there's, there's, there's filler on the album, and... Um, when I listen to the album now, I kind of have the viewpoint like I'm listening to songs that are in some in some regards they're they're kind of like you can think of them as being demos because they they had three days to get these these tracks recorded and they they were working with a, a session player uh, Bob Moore um, very you know a prolific uh, uh, bass player yes a session bass player pro absolutely prolific and um, it came together very quickly, but it was basically, let's go down to Nashville, let's make this album, but then nothing happened afterwards. The hope was that um, like Tim Delero is 
told me that Tim Blair, the road manager, had been with them for that point by for almost two years. Uh, the hope was that this would um, sort of trigger some activity for the band, but that didn't end up happening. And so the grape were um, by the end of May, the grape were almost you know they well they were done. They were the done. album's not yeah. going to come out for a few months, but the band is, uh, for all intents and purposes, completely done their activity. Ironically, uh, Moby Grape starting at the Ark in in um, September nineteen, you know, August September nineteen sixty six. It's right uh, right at the time that the first Star Trek episode aired, and and right 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 around the time that they were last in the studio together in Nashville at the end of May. That's right at when the last Star Trek uh-huh. episode aired. So their their career occurs right at the same time as Star Trek, the original Star Trek. Yeah, with much less uh, lasting success. And, and my understanding is that Bob Johnston basically told him, no no funny stuff, no fooling around, we're just going to bang this album out. Like he was very much not, it was not an encouraging artistic environment, it was a contractual obligation fulfillment record. They, they felt that from, um, well Don certainly felt that much more from Columbia and um, he wrote that song, this song called Love Song, and he, he wrote that song partly about feeling like like our career has come to this now. We're, ju- we're just given three days to make this album. Uh, with Bob Johnston, they found um, in the studio, he was, really, uh, he was really joking a lot, actually, but his approach to working with the band was to really sort of step back and let, their, let them do their own thing. And uh, they did have fun down there. Like Charlie Daniels was hanging around a lot. This was, of course, before Charlie Daniels had made a huge name for himself. And they encountered some people. Like they went to the um, to to watch uh, uh, Johnny Cash perform at the Grand Ole Opry. They had some fun down there, but it was it was really um, an unfortunate end for such a such a talented band. Yeah, and then the you know you don't go into this in the book, but the the history of the band through the '70s and '80s and '90s is a long series of attempted uh, you know revivals of the band. Obviously, we talked about the 1971 revival, uh, 20 Granite Creek, and the whole second round when they got the whole band back together and, and made a big push on a major label and played the Fillmore, and that worked out. But then after that, the rest of the years are you know three fifths of them would get together, or two of them would get together, and they might record something but then they wouldn't be able to use the band name and they'd play play a few gigs and and but you know it's just a long series of i mean the, the music industry was not going to give these guys another chance and you know they're basically outcasts and exiles for the rest of their performing lives and you know mosley gets to record a, a second album but you know if you look at the photographs of the group in 1998 the last time they got together, 98, 97, something like that. The last time they got together before Skip died, Mosley looks as bad as Skip Spence did. Yeah, so they performed together in 71 around the time that they, when they were recording and putting together Granite Creek. And that was the last time that they um, really were trying to see if they could function as a quintet. And as you mentioned, they, they, had all these reunions over the years sporadically, but they never got the five people all together to make a full album together. And, and even Granite Creek had um, Skip's uh, participation in the album was very limited at that point. And it's again, mm-hmm. maddeningly frustrated because we know that Skip had some pretty strong rock songs uh, that he, you know, he would record just a couple of them immediately afterwards. And, and, Yep. He supposedly performed several of them at the Fillmore East, or at least the rehearsal before the Fillmore East show. And yet they choose to release an instrumental. 
just a very odd choice. It's it's impossible now at this point. Like, was Skip just too out of it to get him to settle down and record his songs? Did he think he was going to do that? You know, with another entity, he was involved in the formulation of the Doobie Brothers. For one thing, but you know, it's just sort of mystifying as as to why they didn't make better use of Skip Spence on Twenty Granite Creek. Yeah. Um, so recording the album. So really Skip and Don were the only people who were living at 20 Granite Creek. So this, uh, Robbie Robertson sort of famously calls this approach, a clubhouse album where the musicians are living together, or at least partly living together. And it's like a kind of clubhouse and they can do what they want to do. They can, they could pick up and record a song one afternoon and they don't need to wait booking time and, and they don't need to work around other people's schedules. It's funny because for, for me, 20 Granite Creek is an absolutely phenomenal album from start to finish. I, I, I love that album. And it's funny that they the, the creation process of that album was so... Um, you, you, you would not expect that they could produce an album like that where things were really not working out. And getting them together at that... To, make, to, to even buy into this reunion was something that not everybody was into at the beginning. And there was, um, you know, there's a, a real reticence to go back to this, this thing that really didn't work out and was so, uh, you know, emotionally exhausting and, and, and also physically exhausting. When you think, when you look at their tour itinerary, it's a thing that was physically exhausting, emotionally exhausting, and a thing where they feel like, you know, this is something that we, we, we didn't achieve what we set out to do with the, the original run of Moby Grape. Getting people to do this reunion was difficult. And so they, they got all five of them together, but you didn't always have all five of them working together. It was um, closer to the first album than um, certainly than WOW, where you had people getting together in, in much smaller groups at any, at any moment in time, but you didn't really, would you have all five of them working on tracks? And so from uh, my conversations with people, it seemed that Skip was on um, his song that he wrote Chinese song and also apocalypse. And that's it, you know, and, and, yeah. and, and, uh, you know, I mean, I think, I think one thing about Moby Grape that people should understand is that unlike say the Beatles who were together for you know, years and years and with this ironclad unit um, or even the mm -hmm. Rolling Stones who, you know, Brian, Mick and Keith lived together for 18 months in squalor and really forged a bond. Moby Grape just like basically said hi, plugged in their instruments, discovered that they could play incredibly well together, had a few months of playing together for long hours every day. But even then they weren't hanging out all the time, you know, with each other very much. Uh, I think it was Peter Lewis when he was telling the story of the night they got arrested at their release party that he was surprised after the gig was over when Skip showed up at his door because Skip usually didn't hang out with him. And, and so these guys were never really friends and didn't have mm -hmm. that close relationship. And, and so, you know, when they're thrown into this blender and put under all this pressure, they just, you know, the centrical, centrifugal force just pulled them apart. But, you know, to wrap up, like, What's your summation of the Moby Grape story? I mean, what, what's the meaning of all this? What, what's the takeaway from the Moby Grape story? Was it worth it all in terms of we've got all this great music we can listen to? Or is this just a tragic story that ruined, you know, at least two lives and mostly and Skip Spence and maybe, you know, damaged all five of them? Well, um, 
Yeah, so there, there's a lot of positives and negatives that they, they had come out of their experiences. But for me, a big thing is that um, there there's always the possibility, uh, and I talk about that with their first album, sort of sense of possibility and, and an alchemy and exuberance that came out of that was um, all over that first album and all over some of their other music. And when I think about that, so then it makes me think about this band there is no end point. This band is a band that could be rediscovered at any moment in time. And you can, for me, I think, uh, you know, we could think about, go back to 1945 and use the word F. Scott Fitzgerald in any um, English literature classroom in the world and, and people are not going to respond to you. It, it took actually decades for F. Scott Fitzgerald's uh, reputation as, a, uh, as an amazing creative force to actually solidify. And so when I, when I think about Moby Grape, I think that there, there doesn't, just because they were not included in um, the original Pennybacher version of, of Monterey Pop, that doesn't mean that they can't be included in a better extended edition that comes out in the future. And they can always be rediscovered. This is music that is, they, they produced music that is always going to be phenomenal music that can never get diminished. And that first album stands as a, as a from start to finish phenomenal document. And so they're a band of their time, but they're also a timeless band. So that's another unique thing about them. They're of a particular time and moment in time, but they made something artistically that was timeless. So I, I see the potential for people to rediscover their music um, and their art. I love the F. Scott Fitzgerald analogy, but I think you're missing the most obvious one, which is Herman Melville, the author of Moby Dick, who, <laughs> who right. you yeah. know, Moby Dick was not, not a popular book when it came out in the 1850s. It was, yeah, it, yeah. it was literally 50 years before D.H. Lawrence and other people started saying this is a masterpiece of American literature, a masterpiece of world literature, and people started to read it and understand it. And so, it would be pretty ironic uh, if, like Mel- Herman Melville, there, you know, uh, who coined the term that became the origin of their name, if if they have. A late revival and i think that's what i'm trying to do with this podcast and and having you on and i think that's what you're trying to do with this book is to tell people if you care about this music at all you really should check out this band this was an awesome band with a hell of a story and it's worth learning about and you will be glad you checked out their albums because they're fucking great mm-hmm. absolutely and with the book i uh, you know the big thing was to get first-hand stories from the people who were there at that time. That was, that was a huge thing. And, you know, um, Don Stevenson, Jerry Miller, and, and also some of the other people around them, um, you know, Bob, I, t- I chatted with Bob and uh, Tim Delera, Mark Alexander, and, you know, Wes Wilson, one of the artists at the time, like I chatting with Britton Cummings called me on Christmas Eve um, 2016 to talk about the band. He's a huge fan. Uh, the, you know, the people who love the band, just enjoy uh, sharing that with other people and the people in the band who were, t- who were sharing with me, I, you know, I just have to say like, uh, you know, it's a huge thank you. Like they were, they, they were utterly giving up their time. Jerry, I would call Jerry and he would be getting ready for a gig. And I, I, I was sometimes oblivious to that. And he'd be like, literally like spilling a drink while he's getting ready and everything. And he's still talking to me on the phone. And <laughs> so, you know, a huge thank you to all those people who um, contributed. 
Well, cool. Well, and thank you for being our guest on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Nate. It's been absolutely a joy. Thanks for listening. We'll be going on hiatus for a few weeks as we prepare our third season for launch in the fall of 2018. In the meantime, be sure and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com to access the YouTube playlist and hear the music we're talking about. Also, follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast, and we'll let you know when we're back on the air. Cam Cobb's What's Big and Purple and Lives in the Ocean, The Moby Grape Story, is available from Jawbone Press at Amazon.com and wherever fine books are sold.